Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. The rules have changed. Good day, wherever you're listening from. And welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, March 27th, 2009. Episode 118 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Always my pleasure, Joe. Good day, Cliff. We've also got the wingman, Chris Boisel, at the controls. And Environmental Annie, good day, Chris. Um, joining us at halftime will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Shout out hello to him. And today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got Dr. Jason Dubronic and Derek Tanner of EMSL Analytical joining us today. We also will, uh, of course, have our usual halftime and roundup segments. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website every week after the show. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank those sponsors. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. To contact the show, you can call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. I also want to thank a new advertiser on board this week, Gray Wolf Sensing. We're going to have them up on the uh, website and get their little tagline in here on next week's show. We're working with... Uh, Gray Wolf here. I used one of their instruments all week in my class and worked out real well. Don't forget, you can also get your continuing education credits from the IICRC or your IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. We also love to hear from you with requests or suggestions about guests, etc. You can email me or the Z-Man at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Those addresses are also on the homepage of iaqradio.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Turn it over to the Z-Man for the microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. 
Congratulations. To Bonnie Klein from Lee County Government IEQ uh, down in Florida for answering three vintage trivia questions. You can win a cool prize by correctly answering a microband trivia question. And the good news is that a few trivia questions from past shows still remain unanswered. It's easy to submit an answer for the trivia question. Simply email your answer to cliffzlotnick at unsmoked.com. Now the trivia question for Friday, March 27, 2009. We want you to name the scientist who coined the term for describing biological organisms and what small living compartment inspired the term. Back to you, Joe. All right, Cliff. Today's guests are going to be Dr. Jason Dobronik and Derek Tanner of EMSL Analytical. Dr. Dobronik is the National Director of Microbiology for EMSL and has presented on mold issues at over 50 national seminars has several industry-related articles and published, been tr published in numerous trade journals. He appeared in a production of the Oprah Winfrey Show as an expert on bacteria and indoor allergens. His laboratory management emphasis has been on maintaining the highest level of quality assurance possible. He's a member of numerous associations, and he oversees the uh, EMSL group of, I believe it's now 11 Ph.D., microbiologists at the uh, numerous EMSL offices across the country. Derek Tanner is also joining us. He's the EMSL West Coast Regional Manager, the LA testing uh, group out there doing business as, I guess. And uh, he's a degree geologist, also has 11 years in the microscopy business doing asbestos, lead-based paint, metals analysis, and numerous other types of analysis. We're going to refer to uh, Derek is AKA the soot man. He's going to talk to us about soot here the second half of the show. We have uh, had some interest in from listeners about, you know, how do you figure out whether it's from the fire or from whatever, and we're going to talk about that later on today. So before we get started, uh, let's get a little music for our guests. Gentlemen, let's see if we've got uh, Derek and Jason on the line. Hello. Yes, how are you guys? All right, gentlemen, excellent, excellent. You're coming in loud and clear, looking good. Let's start off, um, either one of you can jump in here during the first half. What we thought we'd do is focus on uh, a little micro and some other issues that uh, we wanted to talk about on the for the first half. In the second half, we'll focus more on the soot issues. But uh, let's start off with uh, Jason, uh, Dr. Dubronic. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the most commonly requested types of indoor air quality analysis at ES EMSL? Sure. I mean, uh, it's been some interesting changes over the years since I've been with the company. I started back in 2001 and, and uh, obviously do, doing quite a bit of mold work with, with the company. But we've seen a significant switch where probably I think uh, about 50% of the business was culture-based, you know, uh, fungal 
uh, type of samples coming in, and the other half was four traps and directs and things like that. But over the last uh, five, six years, we've seen a significant drop in the, in the culture-based work. And I would say nationwide, it's, it's probably 80-20 now, where 80% of the work coming in for mold is, is spore traps and directs. So there's been a significant shift that I've seen in the industry. Is there a shift at all? Um, it appears mold is the big one, but are you seeing more of other types of analysis requested? Yeah, the, definitely, yeah, especially over the last year or two. Um, I think people have been expanding their business out there, the, the consultants and, and the home inspectors and whatnot, and, and trying to um, provide their clients with, with a bit more information. And, I mean, it's common sense that there's a lot more to indoor air quality than, than strictly mold. There's, you know, there's, there's bacterial issues, endotoxins, and uh, allergens and asthma triggers and things like that. So we're seeing people add that to their repertoire, and, and then we're seeing that come back to our laboratory with, with a lot more questions on how do I do allergen testing, how do I do endotoxins, and things like that. There, there's a much bigger awareness of, of uh, general indoor air quality because it's not always mold. You know, there's other things out there that, that are giving people problems. My understanding, I'm not terribly familiar with the analysis on bacteria, Jason. I know you are, are really versed at that. What, what types of bacteria sampling do you recommend with, let's say we've got a uh, water damage, it's a category three, we know we had a sewage backup, and uh, somebody wants to clear an area, let's say, or they want to uh, determine whether or not it's been cleaned up appropri appropriately. What type of sampling would you recommend in a situation like that? Actually, that's a good question because it's, it's changed in the, in, the last, in the last year a little bit. There's been a significant development specifically looking at at uh, fecal-related or, or, you know, these Category 3 and 4-related um, backups. And so what we're finding is initially there was people were using, you know, the last you know, 10 years or so, they're looking at using E. coli and fecal coliforms and things like that as, as the best indicator. You know, is, is there a sewage backup? Is, is there any of, of these bacteria left? But in the last few years, there's been researchers at, at the EPA that have been saying, you know, the, these are not the best indicators. They've been around for a long time, and they're, they may be appropriate for drinking water and things like that, but they're not, a, not as appropriate for recreational waters or for, you know, indoor environments for testing surfaces. And so what they've been doing is really focusing on, a, on another bacteria called Bacteroides, and uh, they've developed um, uh, PCR-based methods that, that laboratories are now able to do and they're offering, and we've actually been, been uh, advising our clients to, to use that now as the best indicator because it's really more specific to, um, to feces, whereas, you know, total coliforms and E. coli and fecal coliforms, they are, there are a lot of other non-fecal sources in the environment, so it's not a, as clear-cut black and white uh, when you get the results back. But with bacteroides, it, it is specific for... for um, for fecal contamination. And so we're, we're seeing people do this test and it's been working out very well over the last few months when clients have tried it out. Um, we're, uh, there's also a, a way that you can detect whether or not the bacteroides is of human origin. So you can, you can kind of distinguish, you know, uh, is it total bacteroides? Is there fecal contamination from all sources? And then you can break it down and say, is this human uh, fecal contamination or is it non-human? Is it some animal sources? So it's a great way to source as well, you know, where that contamination is coming from. Now, 
before we get the acronym police on us here, you mentioned PCR. Let's get the uh, uh, full full term there. Sure. Yes, that stands for polymerase chain reaction. Okay. Polymerase is, is just an enzyme that we all have in our cells that, that replicates the DNA, so it makes more copies of it. And it's a chain reaction because once you get this thing going, it's like making photocopies. You know, you have two copies, and those two copies make four, eight, 16, 32. It just really goes in, into this exponential uh, uh, copying stage. Now, is this a swab sample that you do this with? Does somebody go out and swab an area, and, and how big of an area do you recommend? Or do they, you know, do they do just one area, or do they do four or five areas and then, you know, put them all together? What's the best technique for this? Well, it really depends on, on you know, what level of, of uh, insight that you need in, the, in that space. You know, you have to determine you know, how large of a, a contaminated area is this. Certainly, you know, one, one swab is, is usually not going to be enough. Um, you want to take, you know, different areas depending on how large of a contamination that, that you might have. And then uh, I wouldn't co composite the sample. I would do each one separately so you can figure out exactly where there may be still... Uh, problems lying. You know, if this is a, a remediation job and somebody's come in and, and cleaned up the space, then you want to have a nice broad scan in different parts of places where they may not have cleaned properly or if there's any visual cues that you don't think they've cleaned it properly, you know, swab those areas and then send it in to see if, you know, if everything's been done properly. And this would just be a standard swab like you would use to take um, a mold sample with? Yeah, it's, it's, it's standard swabs. We recommend using a, a wetted swab um, for bacteria. It picks up a lot better than, than using a dried swab. So we have uh, different swabs available. We have one that's uh, available in like one ml of, of, a, of a buffer uh, solution so that you, you have it nice and wet, go in, swab those areas. And one inch square or whatnot is, is sufficient um, for each area to swab up. One inch square. Place the back in the container and send it in. Okay. Cliff has one for you. Yeah, um, Jason, I, I guess the question is, we've been seeing a lot of uh, movement within the industry uh, for ATP testing, this adenosine triphosphate, uh, to be tested or, or to be used by remediators. I guess they can go out, they take the swab, they put it in the machine, they get a numerical reading. Uh, any comment uh, on the downside of doing that? Yeah, I've seen... You know, people present information on that. I'm still not 100% up on that or whether or not that's going to be an efficient way to do it. I don't know the ins and outs and, and the, uh, if, you know, if there's um, inhibitors and things like that that may give false positive or false negatives. I'm just not aware of, of the intricacies yet on whether or not that's going to be effective in, in all situations. Certainly, I mean, in theory, you would expect it to, to be working because, you know, you need live cells in order to have the, this chemical present, the, these molecules present, and then you'll be able to detect them with these machines. But I'm just not sure what the levels yet mean and, um, you know, whether or not there, there's inhibitors in the environment that, that may be giving you some false uh, results on that. Well, I guess, you know, you made a good point in that, you know, if it's living, it's going to detect it. I guess if it's dead, it's probably not going to detect it, and that could still be a problem. Depending on what you're looking at, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, endotoxins and things like that, you may have all these dead bacteria there, and you say, you know, it's completely clean this place. You know, there's no live bacteria. You're not going to get any diseases or, or you know, 
get infected with anything, but, but there may be a lot of gram negatives that weren't physically removed out of that environment. You may still have endotoxin that's built up and, and giving people breathing problems and things like that. Yeah, Jason, this I, I, we didn't, we're kind of throwing some things at you. We didn't really prepare you for, but if you don't know, just, just let me know. Um, this has always kind of puzzled me. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the gram-negative bacteria are those that have the endotoxins in the cell wall or whatever the case may be. But I, I just can't for the life of me figure out why out of all these bacteria in the world, only those that are gram-negative end up with this endotoxin. Is there any theory on why that is, or do you feel that that is the case? No, it is. It's not a theory. It's actually it's, it's based on the... Uh, their cell wall, it's a component of their cell wall, it's the polysaccharide layer. So it, for the bacteria, it's a very important part of, of how they're made up and how, how their cells evolved. Um, for us, however, for, for the human impact is, is that we react to that cell wall component, that polysaccharide, they call it the LPS, lipopolysaccharide layer. And to us, when we get that inside of us, that reacts and, and gives us the effect. So it's not specifically they, they came out to produce this endotoxin to somehow, you know, harm people or do, or do something. It's just that we're reacting to something that's naturally they, they need as part of their cell wall, how they evolve. I see. And then that and it's only gram negatives that, that are set up that way. They're the ones that have this, this LPS uh, layer. The gram positives do not. So. I see. Uh, now, Dr. Dobranek, you, I just saw a, se uh, a little segment from a new online training program that EMSL has uh, put out. And they had a little uh, brief version of it available for, for no charge. And, and on that, you describe what mold is. And I thought the way you did it was really well done. Can you briefly take us through that uh, little description of exactly what mold is? Sure. Are you referring to the to fungi and mold? Fungi and mold. Yeah, I think, yes. Yeah, well, fungi, we, we just give a, sounds like a complex definition, but, but I like to break down each term because um, what we're saying is we call it, they're, they're absorptive, filamentous, or single-celled, non-photosynthetic eukaryotic organisms, which, you know, it's a mouthful, but when you break down and, and, and you understand each of these specific terms, it really gives you insight into, you know, what fungi are all about. They're, they're very unique organisms, and so if we take each term, like absorptive, that means that they, it's describing the, the way that they feed, the way that they get their food. Um, unlike us, we engulf our food and digest it inside of us. What they do is they release enzymes into the environment that go out and break down the food, and then they absorb it back into their cells. Okay? And to, to be able to do that, the enzymes need some type of a, a medium that can't go in, into a dry environment and, and move around and break down things. So there's going to be some... Um, moisture and, and water in that substrate for it to move around and break down and then get absorbed back. Okay. Filamentous refers to these tube-like networks. You can envision, you know, all these long tubes all interconnected, weaving and working together as a single unit. And in that, in those filaments, they can be moving food and water throughout it and, and uh, really, really helping different regions out where it can grow into an area where it's a little bit drier by moving or shunting water through these filaments, you know, from the from the wet side to to a drier side, and it allows it to kind of expand a little bit beyond where you would normally think um, it could get to. 
Um, some are single cell. They just grow one cell at a time. These are called the yeasts, and, and they re reproduce by budding. And then the non-photosynthetic is interesting because the, these are not plants. I mean, in, in the olden days, they were kind of lumped together with, with, with plants, but they're unique enough that, that they're not plants. They, they're non-photosynthetic. They don't need sunlight to, to produce food. They, they're what we call heterotrophic. They, they take in food and, and um, you know, organic material. Um, to, to grow, and then eukaryotic is really just a description of the the cell, how, how it's made up, and what's interesting is they ha they're eukaryotic and, and their basic cellular structure is is similar to to us. We're eukaryotic organisms, and so that differs from bacteria. They're called prokaryotic, and I didn't want to get into to the nitty details of what each of those means, but what I think it's important is because we're eukaryotic and they're eukaryotic. It's a little bit more difficult to get chemicals that will, or antibiotics or antifungal chemicals that will, that will harm the fungus and not harm us, you know, oh. because our basic cellular structures are similar. Where antibiotics for bacteria, you know, the, there's a lot more that we've discovered for those because there, there's less of a, a side effect, as, you know, so to speak, with our own cells. So it's, they're more effective to, you know, let's, we have a bacterial infection, let's get these antibiotics in us. You know, they're targeting these prokaryotic cells. They're able to kill them, and there's less side effects on our own cells. So it's just an interesting uh, medical um, twist to it. Interesting. The other thing that we have had differing opinions on over the years here, uh, no, it's been over the years, actually on IAQ Radio over two years, um, is the some thoughts on the prevalence of mold spore fragments in damp buildings and, and how much people think they may contribute to the health effects that people claim to suffer from that live and work in these buildings. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, I think they do have, have an effect. Um, you're, you're right. I mean, it, it is still up in the air. There's obviously a lot of research going into this, but you, you would just imagine that, you know, these fungal cells and these spores, you know, they're going to degrade and become fragments and, and get broken down, but you can envision that, that the um, allergens are still within those smaller fragments. And then there's evidence, you know, there was researchers out of the Texas Tech Health Science Center that, that showed clearly, I think, that these um, smaller fragments, you know, non-intact spores, things that are smaller than spores, are still carriers or, or have mycotoxins in them. And so that, that would be an important component. And then it also glucans. I mean, glucans are being heavily studied in, in Europe and Scandinavian countries as, as a significant uh, health concern um, for, for IAQ issues. So where you may not see these entire, you know, fungal spores, you're seeing sub-fragments, uh, but, but they're having these glucans and other chemicals in them that, that people are going to have health effects to. Excellent. I have to... Remember to keep using fungal instead of mold here. But uh, let's let's. I have another one um, that's kind of been something that's interested me over the years. This group of uh, um, bacteria. Ba well, they uh, some people classify them as bacteria, and I've heard maybe maybe they're not. The ascomycetes. Can you tell us a little bit about what it, what exactly are these ascomycetes? Are they a bacteria, or are they maybe something a little different from a bacteria? No, they're, they're, they're totally different. Um, ascomycetes are fungi. They're, they're a group of fungi. 
Okay. And uh, yeah, so um, what what I think you may be referring to actinomycetes. Yeah, that's it. Actinomycetes. Uh, actinomycetes are are uh, are bacteria. They're they're a group of bacteria that typically grow in the soil and things like that. But there are other places that that they can grow and and cause um, you know hypersensitivity. Pneumonitis has been shown to be caused by some of these actinomycetes that, that get into into um, into uh, people's breathing space through typically through aerosolization of water and things like that. Okay. But yeah, they're, they're, those ones are bacteria, actinomycetes. The actinomycetes are, are in the bacteria, and then the ascomycetes are one of the groupings of the uh, fungi. Correct. And yeah. they're pretty common in indoor environments, is my understanding, the ascomycetes. Ascomycetes can be, yeah, especially if you think of, you know, like ketomium is, is probably one of the key uh, water damage indicator fungi that, that people think of out there, and, and that's an example of an ascomycete. So. Doctor, can you give our listeners that perform IQ investigations a few tips on sampling and how to get their money's worth uh, out of using a lab? Yeah, I think a, a pretty uh, common thing that we see in the laboratory is, especially with, with, you know, the number one thing that we get in the lab is spore trap samples, which, you know, people are taking these every day out there. There's hundreds of samples coming into the laboratory, but we find that, you know, there's some easy things that you can do in the field as an investigator to, to make sure you have the, the best sample when it gets to the laboratory. And uh, what we find is overloading of these samples is a problem where, um, you know, if, if it can, if the area is heavily dusty or if it was just after remediation, there may be a lot of uh, fibrous material in the air. There may be um, sheetrock dust and things like that. And when they take the sample, there's so much material that, in, that gets collected that it, you, we can't analyze it in the laboratory. It's basically a wasted sample. We call it overloaded. Um, and what the investigator can do in the field is when they, after they finish a sample, say they take it for five minutes and before they send it to the lab, they can before you know capping the, the cassette back, they can actually hold it up to the light. And if they can see through it, there should be just a very faint line of dust collected in there. If they see a big white or, or dark opaque line, that's going to be overloaded, and, and I wouldn't even bother sending that into to the lab. I would just chuck that one away, grab another sample, and take it for less time, you know, two to three minutes, and then check it again and send it in. Because you're wasting your own time. You, you know, if you send us ten samples and three of them come back overloaded, and then you got to explain that to your clients. What does that mean? It's not really good data there. You know, just take a, a couple quick seconds to, to check it out, hold it up to the light, make sure there's a faint line, and then send that in. That really would save you time and money in the end. That's a good tip. Excellent, Thank you. Excellent tip. Well, while we're on the topic of spore traps, I have a question that's kind of bothered me, and I know Dr. Wow, who's coming on at halftime for a while, uh, in a moment here, I mean, will we ever see a standardized method between laboratories for spore trap analysis? I think we will. I mean, eventually. I, I don't know how long it's going to take, but, but I've been on that ASTM committee, you know, D2201, at the 2205, I believe, um, and w we just voted on that. Uh, I think it's, it might be ending in the next week or so. But that was put out. You know, been working on it for for the last three years or so at least. And you know, we hashing out details. You know, all the people, a lot of laboratories in the community got together through this ASTM committee, and we kind of put down on paper. You know, what's everybody doing? And then we said, okay, let's take the best ideas out of all these labs and come to a consensus where everybody can be happy and, and we believe producing, you know, 
the best results, but also co- comparable results where, you know, if you send it to our laboratory or a competitor, you can say, hey, I want this ASTM method done, you're going to get comparable results. And now with this last vote, we're going to meet in, in April over in Vancouver, go through some of the, the comments that we get back on that. I mean, this is already second or third time we've done this. I'm hoping that there's very few um, negative comments where we can just address them pretty easily and then uh, there'd be probably one more vote to go out to, and then if that gets approved by the water committee, it's going to be an, an approved ASTM method. So it's going to be published, and and people can start requesting that. So I'm hoping within a year, you know, if everything goes right, I'll keep my fingers crossed. We've been working hard at this, so I'm hoping it's going to be out there. Well, great. I'm glad I asked because I was afraid we might not get that answer. That's great to hear. Listen, uh, let's, uh, why don't we do the halftime segment right here. We're going to uh, first thank our sponsors, then we're going to bring Dr. Wow in for some comments and maybe a question, and then uh, we'll start our second half and bring Derek back on. And we'll also bring you back on uh, in case we have any uh, questions you want to jump in on. Sounds good. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising informational available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Okay, let's uh, let's bring the good doctor in here. Hello, Dieter. We just got you unmuted. Oh, yeah. I... Good day, Dieter. Hi there. Good day to you too. Well, you asked already one question that I always ask, and I know you and I we talked about it uh, with a, a a method for better or for worse uh, to look at uh, mold spores. And, you know, you know that I did a lot of microscopy in my lifetime. And it doesn't make sense right now that somebody says, well, I, we look at uh, mold spores um, with a thousand magnification and oil immersion and, and all of that. And the other one says, no, that is really not necessary. We use what they use in asbestos uh, fiber counting, about 450 or so magnification and anything in between. So I think we got to take care of that, and I was glad to hear, to hear that there are um, uh, committees uh, which are looking into that. And I think the other thing is even if we do viable samples and culture samples, um, I know of several laboratories that we use this agar, and no, this one is better, oh, no, this one is better. And I'm well aware of the fact that there is not one universal argument which is good for everything. That forget it. Yeah, that doesn't work that way. But um, maybe we again should there come to a common denominator before we take off on tangents. And uh, there's another thing that is interesting. I, Joe may know that I, in fact, I spent several years on studying uh, endotoxins at the University of Pittsburgh on in our inhalation toxicology laboratory 
And I read a couple of articles, and I'm not up to date. I'm retired. I'm not up to date on that anymore. But I read something that there even are gram-positive bacteria, which apparently do have endotoxins. I don't think it's the end of the world if they do, but that was interesting to me. And I guess if you look long enough, yeah, you will find something. Interesting. Let's ask uh, Dr. Dubronic. Have you heard that? I have not heard that. Um, no, I know that they produce some, some uh, exotoxins and things like that, but, but I have not heard specifically that they may have also some uh, endotoxin present. But, I mean, these are biological systems. I mean, they, there's no black and white typically in, in, in biology, so um, there's, a, there's always a possibility there's some overlap there. And we also had a guest on, Mac Pierce, who told us that um, we can only culture about 1% of the bacteria on our own body, so that uh, we've, we've got a long way to go before we figure that whole kingdom out, huh? Exactly. Yeah, it's complex. Okay, great. Gentlemen, uh, Dieter, anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm, I listen very carefully, and it's very interesting to see that things are happening. Great. And... Um, I don't know. Is there a new way of uh, measuring uh, uh, endotoxins in the laboratory? I remember the old horseshoe crab blood. I, whenever I used that, I said, there got to be something better around the corner. And this is now, my God, this is 20 years ago, eight, mid-80s, yeah, something like that. It's, it's probably been tweaked a little bit since then, but, but it is still based on the horseshoe cla oh, crab right. blood. <laughs> yeah, they're still, they're still collecting the crabs and drawing their blood and yep, I know. collecting the, the extracts out of that. So. Yeah, well, let me, amazing. Uh, you, you mentioned another term that I, I think we should define for the listeners. We, we mentioned, we heard endotoxins mentioned, which are, you know, from the gram-negative bacteria, the cell wall, but you mentioned exotoxins, I believe it was. Could you... Explain to us and the listeners exactly what that is. Yeah, that that's simply a toxin that's excreted by by a microorganism, so they can produce uh, chemicals that they ex that they excrete. That's where it comes from, exo. So it's coming out of the cells. They they just liberate it into the environment, and that can damage or disrupt, you know, normal cellular metabolism for for other people, and, and that's where it gets its its toxic effect. So there's just a wide range of chemicals that these things can secrete. Um, in, into the environment. Well, excellent, and thank you for that, and thank you for joining us, Dieter. We'll bring you back for the roundup. No problem. Okay, we're going to uh, move on to the second half. Before we do, I think Environmental Annie has a question. I have a question for Mr. Derek Tanner. It's simply, what is soot? Soot. Um, well, soot is. <coughs> excuse me. Soot is a, the um, is a byproduct of um, of of combustion, it's a um, it's an unwanted byproduct of combustion of uh, um, from uh, uncontrolled combustion. That is. Is there a difference between ash and soot, or are they the same? Um, yeah, there, there is a difference. Um, soot is a, is a nanoparticle. Um, well, they are on the nanoscale. They're they're extremely small, whereas ash is the gray. Um, material that's left over, you, you can kind of see ash with your with uh, with your naked eye. Whereas soot particles are so small that you can't see them even uh, with a light microscope. In dealing with fire restoration, the cleanups fall into three categories. There's residue from natural materials such as wood and paper. There's residue from synthetic synthetic materials such as burnt plastic, 
and their residues from what we call a protein fire burnt food. Do all three types of fires produce a soot which can be identified via microscopy? Um, any uncontrolled combustion is going to produce some level of soot, um, ash, or and or char, which is um, which is char is the the um, is is a stage of the of the material where it's you still have some of the um, original structure of the material that was being burnt left over, whereas ash you don't have any of that internal structure left over, um, and uh, the soot you'll have some of those some of all three of those in any fire. Um, so, yes, you can, you know, you can get any, you can get soot from all three of those fires. Can, can you differentiate between the source? Yeah, it's, um, depending on what the, what the, um, the source material was, you can get a, um, in any fire, there's going to be something left over, say, even in a, in an internal combustion engine, like a diesel engine, you'll, um, you'll have some of the particulates from the, um, say, like the engine block left on the soot. So you'll have, uh, like, molybdenum or some heavy metals that were, uh, that were part of the block that were on that soot. So you can, you can determine that, that uh, was, you can have a good idea of the source of the soot by uh, using EDXA. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what is the, Where's the acronym, please? Uh, um, energy, uh, that's energy uh, dispersive uh, x-ray. I'm sorry, go ahead, say it again. Energy dispersive x-ray. Thank you. Thank you. What are some of the common sources for soot found in, inside? Um, you could, uh, uh, in an indoor area, you could mm -hmm. get soot from candles, okay. um, incense, anything that burns, so uh, even oil heaters. Um, you'll get that ovens, um, cigarette smoke. Um, it has to be a lot of cigarette smoke, but you can definitely get soot from that. How are the soot samples that you identify collected? What method is used to collect them? What equipment's needed? Um, pretty much the, the good thing about this analysis, we can do the analysis. We can do it on any type of media. Um, what we recommend is, a, is an alcohol um, prep pad that mm -hmm. you can get from any... Um, any uh, First stage, uh, really. Yeah, you can get them at any store, um, or or um, uh, like some fiberglass um, fiberglass. Uh, what do they call those? Almost like cotton balls, but they're made of fiberglass. Um, and you can swab the so you can like uh, wipe the surface off. Um, we can also do air samples, um, but by far the best is um, is a, is an alcohol prep pad. Now, when when you do that air sample, is that on a filter cassette? Um, yeah, we can do it on anything, PVC, um, uh, cassettes, or an MCE. Um, but due to the size of the particles, um, like I said, they're in, on the nanoscale, um, it's best to do a wipe sample. Best to do a wipe sample. Okay. Yeah. Danny? Because even the, even, the, uh, even the best filters, um, these, these uh, soot particles will make it through even the highest efficiency filters. So, um, you know, you're going to be, you're, it's, most of the time, what you're going to get on an air sample, <coughs> excuse me, is um, the soot will be attached to something else that, that will get stuck on the filter. Okay. So, Annie. Okay. What when uh, soot is viewed under a microscope? What magnification? What magnification is best used? Um, well, this is a good. This is a really good question because um, you can't use a standard light microscope. You have to use an electron microscope, mm -hmm. and you need to get up to 
uh, at least like 20,000x and up to 100,000x to see these uh, to see the soot particles to identify them. You know, once you get this alcohol white back with the particulate matter on it, how do you get it onto the slide? Um, we do uh, the prep is basically we will will um, will uh, suspend the material that's on the on the wipe into a solution and then filter that onto another um, like a PC filter. Um, then we <clears throat> then we can transfer that to a light microscope if we need to, whatever that material is. Uh, identify it using uh, an epi reflected light microscope uh, or a polarized light microscope, and then uh, and also if we need to, we can transfer some of that material onto specialized grids for uh, electron microscopy analysis. I have a two-part question. Uh, what does soot look like under a microscope? First of all, it it it's uh, the term is called a cineform. It looks uh, kind of like grape-like structures. They're tiny, tiny. Uh, pseudo-spherical um, uh, uh, balls that are um, usually, they have like a, um, a colloidal uh, partition in between of the, in between them, so they kind of look like they have a residue around them and they uh, almost a neck that connects the, the balls together. Okay. And the second part of that question, how different do different types of soot look like when they're magnified? Um, they, the particle size is the main difference. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the you know in an uncontrolled um, environment, which is you know such as a fire, like a wildfire, um, you can get uh, a varying particle size range. So, um, you know that's pretty much the only difference is the particle size. Um, without the EDXA, uh, just visually, that's the only thing that you could really differentiate them with. So then you would go to the next level on occasion and try and differentiate through the. Um EDXA, which I forget exactly what it stands for, but uh, uh, energy dispersive X-ray. Yeah, well, you would have to. Um, there are some interference. Um, there are some interference materials such as um, titanium oxide, which is used uh, in, in paints and um, in foods. So uh, those titanium oxides also have a spherical character, and uh, with EDXA, you would be able to see the titanium peak, uh, which would differentiate it from soot, which is is uh, just carbon. So, uh, when would people call on your services to try and differentiate between these types of different types of particles? Um, it's, we're getting a lot of work uh, here in California. We have a lot of wildfires, as everyone knows. So, um, uh, you know, the, you can see from satellite images that those that the uh, smoke from these fires travels a long distance. Travels long distances. Um, you know, if uh, if these these smoke these uh, if the smoke gets into your house and you have, uh, you know, uh, an asthma or something, uh, you know, or you have a, a reaction to this, or um, if it's in certain levels where you've got to, you know, the insurance companies want to clean that up, then, then uh, they would need to have a uh, confirmation that that was there, or maybe they, they would want confirmation that it isn't there. So on both sides, we can be uh, of service. You know, last week we interviewed uh, Jeff Mann. He made an interesting comment. You know, he was involved in a project, and he had taken his microscope out, and uh, he identified some samples as being soot. And, you know, what he believes is a less experienced microscopist uh, identified this as being stachybotrys. And, uh, I mean, do you see any similarity between, you know, stachy under a microscope and soot? Um, well, once again,
again, you'd need to have a, an electron microscope to, to confirm soot. So uh, with an optical microscope, um, you, it, the resolution on an optical microscope is insufficient to, um, to verify soot. Um, I believe, I believe Stachybotrys is, on, is about uh, one spore is roughly, what, 10 to 15 microns? Um, so is that correct, Jason? It's, it's a little bit smaller, four to six. Four to eight, eight or six. Yeah, the biggest. And the soot particles we're talking on the nanoscale, so you know these are much smaller particles that uh, you wouldn't be able to see with the light microscope. Maybe he was talking about uh, maybe ash. Yeah, he, um, char definitely you can you can you can identify char, um, ash. Um, uh, most of the time, an epi-reflected light microscope is the best to look at the to ID those um, on the using a regular light microscope. Because um, you can see surface, um, you can get surface information from the from what you're looking at. Whereas in a polarized light microscope, the light comes from behind, and pretty much anything that um, is opaque, um, that doesn't have any struct, you know, that uh, that you can't transmit light through, um, could be technically, uh, you know, confused with char. You'd need to see some surface, uh, some surface detail to uh, to ID that correctly. Okay. Is is there a sort of database to which samples are compared to? Um, I've heard that the that the U.S. Forest Service has it got a database of of the chemical composition of different types of materials, such as um, such as evergreens and grasses when they burn. Um, I myself haven't really, uh, you know, since I'm on the laboratory side of that, um, the interpretation side would be for um, uh, most of our clients. I don't, I, I haven't gotten into that much. I guess I really have a two-part question. Uh, one is, how confident are you in the level of accuracy on these soot samples? And then the second part of the question would be, is there a lab certification for doing this, or are you, you know, venturing out into new territory with this? Um, for the first part, um, yes, I am extremely confident with our accuracy on these. Um, you know, we've uh, internally, and, and I'll get into the second part right away, is that um, the, I don't know of any certification such as an AIHA or like a NAVLAB certification mm -hmm. for um, combustion byproduct analysis. Um, and we do follow a prescribed method, method which is an ASTM method of 6602-303B, I think is the exact number. Um, and uh, internally we have a, we're not just jumping into this, EMFL has been, um, the, our material science division has been involved in uh, combustion byproduct analysis for a number of years, and internally we have our own um, round robin and, and quality assurance program to ensure that we have uh, the highest level of of, um, of uh, analysis in the industry. Let me, uh, Derek, if you don't mind, I have a question now. I send in this sample. Let's say um, we, we've got a, a wipe sample. I guess it would be. And then, um, what type of sample results would I get back? Do you give me a quantity? Is it a yes or no? Or how does that work? The results, the results are in a in um, in a percent of sample. So you know, whatever you send in, we'll give you the per, we'll give you results based on a percent of sample. And we'll break that down to um, soot. Um, Carbon black. Um, that's a, that's a, another good uh, piece to, of information to touch on. Is that uh, a lot of people use um, carbon black and soot interchangeably, which is which is a misnomer because carbon black is the um, is a is a result of a controlled. It's an industrial um, 
industrial uh, soot, but it's uh, it's the control. It's from a controlled process, um, and carbon black is uh, the particles are a little bit smaller, but they all it's much more uniform in size. Um, so uh, we would give you carbon black soot, char, ash, and uh, and that's in in percentages. By percent, okay. Five percent, yeah, and it's a, it's a, we use a visual estimate, visual area estimate, which is similar to the asbestos industry. Um, so uh, the reporting limit would be one percent. So we'd give you an undetected less than one or, or some percentage above one. Well, is there some something? I'm, I'm just trying to think. You know, if you've got a job where, let's say, you've had some fire damage and um, somebody goes in to clean it up, and there's some controversy about whether or not the homeowners happy and whether or not it's been cleaned up sufficiently is there some background level that is common and that and you can differentiate between what would be a background level and what would be remaining after a cleanup um yeah that i would uh i really don't know the answer to that one i would imagine um i haven't heard i haven't uh i haven't seen any published um regulatory limits as far as what's safe and what isn't safe um, uh, definitely, you know, taking, uh, uh, like in microbiology, taking a, an outdoor a background sample would be, um, would be useful in interpreting your data from indoor. Okay, so you could go to a, non-com- a non-complaint area or a non-complaint building then and, and compare the two. Yeah, certainly, um, you know, the, there's going to be some area in the house. You know, we have a lot of clients that um, you ask if we can do composite samples um, if they can take composite samples for this, um, and the answer is yes, you can. But um, you know, then your data—you don't really have uh, the data to to tell you where the deposition was was greater than in one area. So you could have one part in the house where there isn't any deposition, some uh, one part where there is. But if you do a composite sample, you wouldn't know that. So, yeah, obviously, more sampling is better. Yeah, Derek, I'm going to give you three categories, and I'm just wondering if any one of these uses your services more than the other uh, for soot identification. The first would be property owners. The second would be uh, property insurance companies. And the third would be public adjusters. Is, 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 is there one category that uses your service more than the other? Um, yeah, uh, we don't see too many homeowners. Uh, bringing bringing in uh, asking for this type of analysis, um, uh, it seems uh, from my experience that uh, what we're seeing is uh, our indoor air quality professionals and uh, and home inspectors that are uh, that are working um, with uh, either for the homeowners or for an insurance company, um, and uh, we really don't uh, know if the, what side that is once they get to us. Like we just deal with the uh, inspectors. Okay. We're going to go to what we call a roundup, gentlemen. We're going to bring everybody back in. We've got a text message in from uh, one of our listeners, and uh, we're going to bring everybody back in for one final round of questions.
All right. Let's go to uh, Dr. Dieter Weil first. Dieter, any questions or comments? Yeah, I just just a comment. Um, if you get yourself a membrane filter, and there are many of them uh, available, PVC or Teflon or mixed cellulose, it doesn't matter, with a nominal uh, pore diameter of one micron, and uh, you were yeah, to attempt to uh, catch particles of 0.1 micrometers in diameter, they will not go through that filter. You catch 100% of them. The only problem is now you have a, a particle of 0.1 microns or micrometers on the filter. You still can't resolve it with a light microscope. The uh, visible light approximately has a wavelength of, what, 0.5 micrometers, and you just cannot resolve with a light microscope a 0.19 particle. You can catch it, but you can't see it with a You can't resolve it. You can see a smudge or something like that. So that's all right. The other thing is I, um, I investigated a, a complaint in an office building which conveniently was located literally within a couple of feet of a railroad track where there is quite a bit of traffic. And on the other side, um, on, a, on a highway, uh, there are more trucks on that highway than passenger cars. In other words, we are talking about diesels. And there is a bus lane which again are diesels right next to that building. And that should, uh, I collected on, on, on white filters and just as a, um, as a, uh, a quick check, you know, I saw the black soot particles and many of them were not single particles. They do agglomerate, there is, they coagulate because they are so many next to each other with different charges so all of a sudden you get twins and triplets and quadruplets, and uh, so the particle becomes uh, larger, and you you can start seeing them as soot. So uh, sometimes, you know, Mother Nature works in, in your favor uh, under those circumstances. Excellent, sure, sure. Derek. Any any uh, comments or Jason? Yeah, they definitely the 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 soot particles are co would conglomerate, but uh, as far as as far as a, a a confirmation, um, a scientific confirmation. We, uh, you know, we prescribe the, or we go by that the method, the 6602 method. And, um, you know, an EDXA would be needed to differentiate that, you know, those soot particles uh, in a in a microscope in a microscope situation. Oh sure, I mean there, there are other small little particles which are black, no doubt about it. Yeah, with a light microscope, I, I mean if you get that. You get a big chunk of those things together. You know, you put it in a underneath a light microscope, and it's going to be an opaque ball of nothing um, under a light microscope. So there's really no information that you can gather from a light microscope um, from that from those conglomerated particles. Okay. I've actually got a question, I guess, for both Dieter and uh, Derek. You know, one of the things that people that do fire restoration see pretty commonly is in fires where synthetic materials burn, uh, primarily plastics, we end up with uh, what look like dirty cobwebs in the corners of the, of the rooms that are actually formed by these soot particles. And I'm just wondering if they look, un if that soot looks unusual under uh, a microscope, because I think that there's definitely an attraction uh, of charges that that's causing this. I just wonder if it looks different under a microscope. Um, 
yeah, I'd, I'd have to see the samples to see what they look like under a microscope. But certainly, that brings, you just brought up a good point: is how the the deposition of the of, um, of soot on surfaces is uh, the electrostatic uh, nature of these particles as they go through the air, collect a charge, and they're attracted to um, you know th- other things with a charge, such as um, good areas to um, to sample our our pressure molded plastics like TVs and and uh, picture frames on walls. Um, and, it, and, you know, where there's a temperature difference, there's also an electrostatic difference. So, the, so it would be de- deposited there a little more than other places. I've got a toss-up question from really a listener. And what they're looking for is what would be a good way or a good suggestion to calm homeowners and educate them about mold in their home? Well, I think a lot of good information is, is on the uh, ETA website, you know. That, that comes from the, from the government, uh, so I think they put a lot of thought into it. But I, I think it's very practical, you know, what what they put out on on um, you know mold in schools and things like that. That's applicable to to homeowners as well. So it gives them a good overall appreciation of of what's going on in the in the, in the industry and, and health effects and things like that. It, it's not this um, you know scare tactics that that you see some people talking about out there. So I think it's it's a moderate approach. That's great, great advice, and they do have one for mold in the home as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, uh, I think that's a great piece of advice. I typically tell the remediation contractors the same thing. Look, here's a, a good government pamphlet that you can show a homeowner and try to calm their fears a little bit. Um, let's uh, move on. I'm going to, actually, I think it's my turn here. Huh? It is your turn. All right, good, because I've been I've been waiting for this one here. Um Dr. DeBranick, let me think. Now, I had a, um, I have a CV here from you, and there is a presentation on superbugs in our communities. Can you talk to us just a little bit about this uh, growing concern about these superbugs and maybe tell us what the ones that you're most concerned about are? Sure. I mean, it's definitely something I'm sure you've heard about, obviously, being in the industry, but even as a general um, concern for for the, the the public out there. You've you've seen uh, you know newspaper articles and and on the news you know outbreaks of, of people coming out with these superbugs. And what's been going on is over the last you know decade or so, um, we're just getting this this built up resistance in in uh, bacteria out there that that are you know passing our first line of defense, which are antibiotics. And so when we get an infection, you know people are getting treated with antibiotics, but now they're they're having some of that that are resistant to some of these first line of defenses. You know, we still have antibiotics that can combat them, but once they start overcoming the first ones and the second ones, and now they're becoming multi-drug resistant. So, you know, two or three or more drugs they're, they're able to, to get around. And how that really happened is that, you know, we're over-prescribing antibiotics and you know, there's antibiotics put in, in livestock feed and there's, there's you know, people that, that get their uh, prescriptions, they, they may not run it for the full course and then, they they feel better after a week, but it says they to take the pills for two weeks. But they decide to throw the throw, throw them out, and they, they may feel better, but they may still have some bacteria that are still present. If they don't take the full dose, they're allowing these couple bacteria to, to stay alive, and and there's a chance that they become uh, now resistant to that drug. And so some of the main ones in the media and that, that I'm concerned about, just because of the pervasiveness and 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 the uh, you know the the virulence of some of these bacteria is, is MRSA, which is the methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. There's a VRE, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, 
and uh, probably the next biggest one is, is Clostridium difficile, yes, C. Diff. or some people call it C. diff, which is a intestinal and, and causes diarrhea and things like that, but it's a very severe form and, and it's a significant problem in there. It's actually estimated about $3 billion a, a year now just to treat C. diff infections. The big challenge with C. diff is that it's more resistant to antimicrobial agents than uh, you know the staph uh, organisms are, so it's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, I, I, my brother's the perfect example. He's in the uh, uh, intensive care unit for about seven weeks there. Unfortunately, he's doing much better now. But he had the uh, he had two of the three. Um, we didn't get the C diff, and we were right. kind of happy he had about the VRE that. and uh, MRSA. Yeah, he had the VRE and the MRSA, so. Uh, I'm a little bit familiar with that, and that was one of the reasons that caught my attention. Gentlemen, what we'd like to do before we go is we always like to give you the last word. Um, let's let's start with Dr. DeBronick. Anything that we missed that you'd like to add or anything you'd like to add just for uh, our listeners? Yeah, just a, one quick thing that, that I forgot to mention. It, for that ASTM committee, it's actually D2208. I misspoke earlier, but what, what the committee is also working on that, that's going to be coming out, I think, that's a little bit further along the spore trap. Um, standard method is going to be first, but we've already started working on a direct exam method, so tapes and swabs and things like that will be covered in this next method, and then uh, slated to, to go after that are, are culture-based methods. So there's a lot going on with this committee to um, try and further you know, laboratory work and, and to get people better data out there. So I think it's going to help the industry in, in all. Great. That answers one of Dr. Wall's concerns there, so hopefully we'll see some forward movement on that and let's uh, go to Derek anything you'd like to add yeah the, you know the industry is um, is in kind of flux with this uh, uh, combustion byproduct analysis and I just want to caution everyone to that's doing this type of analysis to to do some research and, and make sure that the, the lab you're choosing um, a knows what they're doing uh, has a history of this analysis and is is using uh, the correct uh, correct uh, instruments such as an electron microscope. There are some some uh, people that are offering um, uh, a, a soot-like particle analysis using an optical microscope, and you should you should definitely stay away from those. Very good, gentlemen. Well, I want to thank both of you for joining us here this week on IAQ Radio, Dr. Jason DeBronick and Derek Tanner, both of uh, EMSL Analytical. Next week, we're going to have a, an interesting show. Most of you have. Probably never heard of this uh, young lady, Anissa Coy, but uh, I promise you it will be interesting, at least uh, from what uh, the Z-Man has told me here. So I want to also thank the Z-Man for joining us this week and uh, Environmental Annie and uh, Wingman for taking care of the controls and, of course, uh, Dr. Dieter for joining us as our technical director. But most importantly, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. We had a real nice uh, online group here today. Downloads are up again. I want to thank our growing group uh, group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.